All right. It, it appears to be recording. Okay. Um, okay, so, so this is last session, session number four. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how many of these of the titles made it into the bulletin. Um, but this one I have entitled Secret Agents. So it's the battle for your children. This one is Secret Agents. And the direction is towards creating agency in your children. All right, so, so when you think about secret agents, you probably think about James Bond. First person comes to mind, James Bond. Um, and that, that helps you a little bit just thinking about the, the definition of, of what the word agent means. An agent is somebody who uh, has uh, power to do something. A secret agent is somebody who, who can go behind enemy lines or uh, into other uh, countries, not identify who they are, and, and act uh, with some kind of freedom on behalf of the, the government that they're representing. And that kind of gets you closer to thinking about this the right way. So, uh, agent comes from the Latin nagire or gire, uh, depending on how classical or whatever you are on that. Um, and it means to do or to act. And so, when we think about creating agency in our children, it's, it's about giving them freedom and competence and guidance and responsibility to act on their own. It's something that you should be thinking about and working towards uh, as a Christian parent. And probably you recognize that this is something that we're not um, especially good at. I think I think Christian parents uh, really struggle with this concept. Um, there are, of course, kind of two directions you can go with this. You can be sort of a free-range parent where um, you kind of pat yourself on the back and say, yeah, let, you know, I let my kids, you know, go outside all day, and I don't see them till it's dinner time. And if they if they want to, you know, eat uh, eat lunch, they got to kill something and um, and and find a way to cook it or eat it raw, whatever, um, and and feel really good about that. That's not what we're advocating, um, but we're also, in a, and I think where the emphasis has to be is on the opposite direction, is, is to say that, no, you do want to be empowering your children towards the exercise uh, of freedom in your absence. And um, let, let me tell you some, some reasons why I think that, that this, is, this is why and how we struggle um, uh, in, in overprotecting um, uh, our children. So, so first reason is I think we're scared for our children because we have good reasons to be scared for our children. Um, there are safety concerns that are put in front of us constantly. We're, we're in kind of a litigious culture. Um, uh, thank you, Frederick Marsenak. Um, and there is there are you know all sorts of signs of lawsuits anywhere. Has anyone tried to uh, put gas in their lawnmower recently? You got anybody have a new gas can? Okay. Yes. Our, if you ha, there, there is nothing. I've never spilt more gas in my life um, until I you know, once I got the the, you know, the latest version of a gas can. Um, they put some kind of thing on there that's supposed to keep you from spilling. It is impossible to use. And I got so excited. I saw a video uh, the other day on YouTube, and if somebody is explaining th- this is how you use the the, the new um, Thank You California. Uh, the new gas cans, and what he did was he took it and then he just took some scissors and he just cut the top of it off. <laughs> I was hoping for something more, but that no, that actually that helps. Um, and so yeah, so so safety concerns are in front of us all the time. We hear about them all the time. We have reason to be afraid. Uh, we also are as Calvinists, 
uh, and, and Augustinian Calvinists, we, we know we live in a fallen world, that sin has, has impacted us. We know that there are, uh, it's not only a fallen world, but there are aberrations that abound in people rebelling against God, and, and that's also in our face. We're very aware of it, so that makes us afraid. Uh, another thing that makes us afraid that we don't think about is we don't live in close enough relation to other people. And so people are scarier than they used to be. My hometown growing up, uh, Santa Ana, Texas, you knew who the crazy people were. And like your parents could tell you, like, don't go near that house. Um, you know, walk on the opposite side of the street when, when you come to, to, to that part of town. Um, they didn't tell me not to go walking through town. They just said, don't go, <laughs> stay away from that person's house. Uh, and that was because there, there were long memories uh, in the town. You, you knew people deeply. We live in a transient culture. <clears throat> people move a lot. Uh, we move around a lot. We move from house to house. And so our neighbors who, who live next door, we don't have a deep knowledge of their, their, their character and of their life. We just, we just don't know them well. And the same thing can be true with people in the church. Uh, people, people move in and out of the church. And it's a blessing when you have a, a long period of time. Um, when, when I've gotten Brett, uh, mad at, at Brad Cornwell because of you know, something that he said to me uh, um, you know, three years ago, I remember that, but we're also still here, and we've kind of worked through that, and we get along. It's like, we just don't talk about that subject anymore. Just kind of learn. I still go there with Brad. And so, these living in close relation to people helps us get over some of those, those fears. Uh, a fourth reason is that we doubt our children's competence. Uh, we just don't think that they're, they're ready uh, to be in the presence of others and to learn apart from us. That's a kind of a natural parental reaction to say, let me keep them close. I just don't trust them. And they may have given you reason not to trust them. Um, a fifth reason, I think this one's kind of interesting, uh, we don't have as many children as we used to. And so the fewer children you have, uh, the more your resources are focused on that one child or those two children, their burdens weigh a lot more than when you have seven or eight children. Um, when you have seven or eight children, you get vastly, greatly humbled uh, by that. As, as one parent taught me, you know, when, when you, you add a third, you go from playing man-to-man defense to playing zone defense. Um, it, it just doesn't work the same way. You've got to share resources to try and do that. And so... Uh, Having fewer children gives us a greater sense of what we're able to do with them. And there is, but it also creates, creates more fear. When you have uh, seven or eight kids, they, they become expendable at some point. <laughs> not, not, not really. Not true. Um, but you are humbled and you, you recognize there are limits to what you can do. Uh, a sixth one is that despite our doctrine um, of depravity... We also have these ideas uh, that our children are pristine, that they are innocent, and if we just keep them close, we can preserve that innocence. We can keep them from becoming spoiled uh, by the world. And we, when we do that, we're forgetting what's in their heart um, as those who are uh, sons and daughters of Adam. A seventh thing, uh, and the last thing, is that we make wisdom issues law issues. We make wisdom issues, law issues. In other words, we have good ideas on how to do good to our, our children um, and the rules that we make for them. Uh, and, and we elevate those beyond what they should be so that they become a law that we obey as if it were the law of God. Instead of looking at the law of God um, for what it actually says. And so... Our children are not better for um, not knowing the law of God, but but thinking everything that we say is uh, is the law. And so all those things together, they, they tend to promote in a sort of a fear-based parenting. And that will manifest itself in different ways. We're going to explore that 
um, as, as we go on. So let me start uh, by talking about, kind of as a precursor to where I want to go, let me talk about self-esteem. Um, someone who's, who's not afraid, um, like jump in, tell us, what are your thoughts on self-esteem? Like what, what place does it play in the lives of our children? What do you think? Don't be afraid. No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, that, yeah. Very good. Where do you say, Stephen? Yeah. You, you shouldn't focus on it. Um, so, so as Christians, we, we, um, a lot of us uh, in this church, kind of how we've been brought up. Um, if you've been here, you know, the last twenty years, um, uh, we are. Uh, your, your pastoral st- staff, and to some degree, are, are, are sons of Jay Adams, um, who, who uh, kind of smacked us around and said, look, everybody chill out about self-esteem. Uh, but also, at the same time, most of us, if, if, you are, if you've been around evangelicalism the past 30 years, you, you feel the influence of James Dobson. Um, uh, James Dobson uh, was a, a huge popularizer of self-esteem in the lives of the church. And, and this goes back late 60s. There's a guy, Nathaniel, um, Nathaniel Brandon, uh, who wrote this, this uh, paper which became a paradigm for the culture. It was called The Psychology of Self-Esteem. And basically, this thing gets gets picked up. There's a lot of research that supports self-esteem. There's a lot of correlations that go along with it. There's a lot of data that, 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 that would force you to say there's something to this. But he writes this paper, and what happens is it spreads out into basically every corner of the culture. And so if you if you you know go to uh, South Carolina uh, um, government documents on health and whatever, you're going to find documents that talk about the importance of self-esteem. Um, if your kids go to uh, a public school or uh, most uh, Christian schools, they're going to they're going to hear somewhere along the way in a health class or something else about the importance of self-esteem. Um, if you go searching on, on the internet, you're going to find self-esteem articles are just going to be everywhere um, that you look. If you go to your doctor, you're going to find something that talks about self-esteem. It's it's going to be everywhere you go, and it can't not be part of your your, your thinking because it's reinforced uh, so much. And like I said, it, it's it, many evangelical churches. You're going to find this. You might find something in the hallway. You walk down the hallway, and there's a poster that says something about about self-esteem. What? Why is why is the idea of self-esteem compelling? Um, who is happy with being unhappy uh, with himself or herself? I mean, granted, there's these periods of, you know, uh, middle school girls where they really kind of relish in being unhappy with themselves, and so, you know, they wallow in that, but really nobody's, nobody's happy with being unhappy. Nobody's, nobody likes to not like themselves. Um, so so that's, that idea is, is compelling. And what, what mom is out there who, who is okay with, with her daughter um, not being comfortable in her skin? I mean, is there any mom that, that's like, oh, yeah, I'm fine with that. She just needs, yeah, that's great. No, no. I mean, as a parent, when you see your your your, your children not happy with themselves, then you're just like, yeah, that, that troubles you. You want to fix that. You you instinctively say, no, that's you know, no, that's not true, honey. You're beautiful. Or, no, you're so smart. Or, no, no, you know, you're you're a great friend. And we just we say those things without even thinking about whether they're they're true or not. And so, uh, there is something about. Uh, there's a correlation between not doing well and not feeling well. There's absolutely a correlation, but self-esteem is not a vitamin. 
that we give our children. We, we don't just by giving them words of affirmation or by, by themselves giving themselves words of affirmation about how great they are, that doesn't turn you into what self-esteem says and the self-esteem movement says it's going to make you a better person. Frequently, people that are doing well feel well. And, and so, so that, um, that goes back to what Hudson was saying, is that you know, what do they feel up to? What are they capable of? Um, when you know what you can do, what, what you're able to do, when you've seen that and experienced that, you do feel better about yourself. Uh, you might have days where you're really disappointed because you don't measure up to what you thought you could, but when you have a good, honest appraisal of your own competence, then yeah, there, there's something that does feel really good about that, and that's and that's vitally important. So, let me give you some, so a couple of a couple of ways that Scripture teaches us to think about this, and these are just little points to kind of poke at. But but uh, listen to this self-assessment uh, in Scripture. Surely I am more stupid than any man. And do not have the understanding of a man, neither have I learned wisdom, or have I knowledge of the Holy One. Surely I am more stupid than any man. Is that a, is that a wise thing to say? Proverbs chapter 30, book of wisdom, I think we're going to have to own that one. And so, yeah, so there's got to be a category of self-assessment that says, yes, I am stupid. Moms everywhere, Flint, you know, they're not supposed to say that word. It's in Scripture. <laughs> Here's another one. You'll probably recognize this one. Uh, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Um, Is that a right assessment of others? John the Baptizer, he wasn't a Baptist, it's John the Baptizer. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a correct assessment. He is revealing something to them about their heart. And he even tells them about their identity and their heritage, which they think they can rest in. He says, no, 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 no. I, I don't care if you're a child of Abraham. You're not a child of Abraham if you don't share Abraham's faith. Um, Here's another one. Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Who is he saying are saints? The church of Corinth. What do we know about the church of Corinth? These people had some issues. Yeah, they had some serious issues, and Paul's going to go on to, to do that. And so, when we look at those, script, those, those scriptures, we, we recognize there's a self-assessment that can be extremely critical. There is an assessment of others that can be brutally honest and accurate that deprives them of the sense of, of self-worth that they may have when it's grounded in the wrong thing. And then there, there is this also this, this way of, of considering ourselves and other people as to who we are in Christ. And what that makes us capable of, which is which is very much what Paul is getting to with with the saints in Corinth, is that they are saints because Christ has made them holy. He has sanctified them. He has given them the title of being a saint, a sanctified one. And it's not their work, it's His. But because of His work, they're called to more work. And so, there, there is sort of a correct way in which we can rightly think about ourselves. Think about this. The opening words of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. From John Calvin. He says, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves. 
He says, you have to know yourself. There's, the, there's a right way to understand yourself. Now, it's not a glowing, positive sense of self that he tells us to look at. He goes on, he says, Thus from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we recognize the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good, and purity of righteousness rest in the Lord alone. To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. And we cannot seriously aspire to Him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. For what man in all the world would not gladly remain as he is, what man does not remain as he is, so long as he does not know himself, that is, while content with his own gifts, and either ignorant or unmindful of his own misery? Accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find Him. What, what, what Calvin is saying is that when we have an honest look at ourselves... And we can own who we are before God, which is a wayward sinner desperately in need of grace. That puts us in the best position we can possibly be in. It draws us to the place where we can go to God in Christ and find salvation there and be transformed in who we are. And and that, of course, fits with what Christ himself says. Whenever he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says there's this knowledge that that you need to have of yourself that gives you the capacity to go to Christ, to be rescued by Christ. And you don't do that when you think everything uh, is perfect. So how does that translate into parenting? How how does that do us as parents any good? Well, let let me give you... I'm going to give you five sort of areas to think about here. And I'll try to be fast with these so we can get to other things. But five truths to to own and to affirm uh, for our children. First thing, you want accuracy for your children to know their position in Christ. Accuracy for children knowing their position in Christ. Uh, Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for everyone who comes to Him must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. There, there's no pleasing God until you come to Him in Christ. Um, we should have hope as covenant parents. Uh, and, and particularly hope in the covenant promises of God. Just as Pastor Robbins was talking about, the kind of hope that we have this morning is, a, is an infallible hope, uh, not because we feel good about the future, but we're confident of who holds the future, that, that a sovereign God has determined these things. Um, so we're hopeful for covenant promises. We believe in our children's baptism because it's given to us as a promise of faith. And they're reminded along with that that they must have the faith that goes along with that to make that efficacious. The third thing is that we need to have appreciation and develop an appreciation for the privileges that belong to those who are in Christ. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ is that, that that comfort comes from that relationship with Christ. That's, that's where all our comfort has to be grounded in going back to a right relationship uh, with Christ. And he goes on, he says, Our hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Is that the ability to love, to do the things that God calls us to do, in keeping His commandments and, manif- and manifesting our love for, uh, for our Savior, is going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. A fourth thing is there needs to be an honesty about actions and abilities. In the same vein, Christ writes or Christ teaches us in John fifteen five, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. 
as parents for regenerate children, it becomes right for them to, ex- to expect of them obedience, to grow in that obedience. It's a capability that a believer has. And then a fifth thing is there's hope for the opportunity for growth. Is the way Scripture talks about believers is there's a, an expectation that they change uh, over time. Paul writes Philippians 2.12, It is God who is at work in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. Um, so we deal in truth with our children. Um, if we're dealing in, in truth with our children, if we're recognizing what God has done for them, if we understand the, the capabilities that the indwelling Spirit has um, in them, then we're going to raise our expectations and it's going to move us from overprotecting our children. Um, now, do our children need protections? I don't have to convince you. Yes, <laughs> they need protections. Um, there are things that they need protection from. Secret agents don't just you know say, "Hey, you're a secret agent, Michael. Deploy. Uh, you know, head head to Eastern Germany and hope it works out for you." We don't we don't do that. We we equip with training. We, we equip with a con- clear conviction of the purpose of your mission. You you give expectations for the kind of things that you can face. Face. You, you give training that is going to make someone more successful in difficult situations. And so. So, um, there are protections, but it's, it's the form that those protections take. And so, I would say, I had a, had a conversation with a parent earlier. Um, there are some things that are, are your children will not be ready for based on their age and maturity, and maybe based on that particular child. And so, something your child is not ready for is, is unrestricted computer and smartphone freedom. Uh, you can't give a 12-year-old a smartphone wide open and say, have fun, hope you don't get into trouble. Um, that is the wrong kind of hope. That is not grounded on any kind of assurance given to you in Scripture. Um, this is one of the areas I'd be the most heavy-handed with my, with my, my children to say, look, this is just not something that you're competent to handle at this point. I'm going to increase your freedoms over time, but you're going you're gonna to demonstrate competence over time and trust over time things that will that will raise my level of comfort with you having that level uh, of freedom. Uh, another area that, that I tend to want to exercise more protection is something like a sleepover. In part because of other parents' smartphone um, and electronic media policies. Is that, um, you know, unless you have a good handle on what they allow, um, what kind of things they're comfortable with, then it's probably not a good idea because a lot of children will, you know, you know, it only takes one person at the party having a electronic device that they disclosed or didn't disclose that they had with them, um, saying, "Hey, everybody, come look at this." What will the other kids do? Yeah, most of them are going to to say, "Yeah, let me see that," and they might might turn away, they might not. Um, so recognize that. And then other things that are just truly dangerous situations. You know, you, you don't toss your kid into the deep end of the pool and tell them to swim. Um, you begin with you know things on the other. I guess that might be a technique with some some people. I don't know. Um, most people will do some other things to help them learn that. Um, yeah, the old sink or swim technique. Um, and you don't give them a loaded firearm without training. It's just not a good idea. At some point, it's a good idea to you know teach them how to use a loaded firearm. But that's you know, not really a four-year-old kind of skill. Um, that's too heavy for them to carry. Um, they're not up to that burden, and so. Recognizing there are phasing, there's a phasing in that goes on with our kids, uh, uh, but we don't just drop them in uh, to the deep end. Okay, what are some unneeded protections that we do? 
What are some things that we do protecting our? What are some things we protect our children from that we shouldn't? Um, you shouldn't protect your children from work. Uh, and parents, we do it. Um, you know we do. Why do we protect them from work? Because they make more work when you have them work. Um, it's 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 painful to watch them do things when they don't have the competence. I remember the first time I turned Clay loose um, mowing the lawn. Um, he he was he was very efficient in how he did it. Didn't want any wasted energy. But there were these strips, you know, of, of four inch tall grass um, that that somehow you know he, he didn't really see and observe the right way. It was and you know I had to go out and it's like oh, what in the world uh, and try and clean up some of the stuff that he did, some of the parts that he missed, and some of it was because he's, the boy wasn't strong enough. My yard was like you know, had a thirty degree slope on it, and you know part of my asking him to do something was a little too heavy for him. Uh, but it, it took some training. Eventually, he got to be very good at it and pretty decent in the yard. Um, so we protect them from work. We shouldn't. We shouldn't protect our children from church. Uh, church is a place that they belong. And when things are difficult in the church, we don't withdraw from uh, the church. In the same vein, we don't protect them from their peers. There might be a peer that you create some separation from um, or give some tools with. Um, but overall, we don't say we need to withdraw children from their society uh, ordinarily. A fourth thing, we don't protect our children from disappointment. You want your child to be disappointed. It is a good thing. We don't like it. It doesn't feel good as a parent when they're going through disappointment, but we want them to have that. We also, in the same vein, don't protect our children from pain. Injury, yeah. Infection, yes, you should do what you can to, to prevent that. Uh, but pain is something that you want them to experience. They need to. It's part of their growing up and becoming the kind of person they need to be, especially as a disciple of Christ. Sixth thing we don't protect them from is discipline. They need discipline. Painful discipline is effective, Proverbs teaches us. Um, there is uh, a verse that says literally... Uh, blows that wound or bruise or blue <laughs> cleanse away evil. What could that mean? Um, it, the point is it should be painful. Uh, and if your discipline is not painful, um, then don't expect it to be effective. The Lord disciplines those He loves. Um, a seventh thing we, we should not protect our children from is from risk, from potential for disappointment, for dis- defeat, for discouragement, for pain and loss. Um, we want them to be in opportunities where those bad things can happen. So that those bad things can happen to them and they can learn how to deal with it. Why shouldn't you be, why shouldn't you be protecting your children from those things? Because it's not safe to keep your children safe. Okay, just let that sink in. It's a bumper sticker. It's a simple phrase. Repeat it over and over until it means something to you. It's not safe to keep your children safe. Um... I've known parents who have protected their children and who thought they could protect their children who tried desperately to protect their children from various kinds of bad things uh, that have happened. I've known people that, that, that did it because they believed. I, I think I've, I may have said this before in this series and I've said it before many times, but um, I've had parents in this church who believe that uh, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Um, the youth group is full of children Therefore, the youth group is full of fools. 
Um, therefore, I don't want my child to associate with fools, and so I'm not going to let them to be in the youth group of the church. I'm going to pull them out of that, that aspect of life um, in the church. Um, what I found was is that that did not have the intended outcome that they believed. Um, uh, it ended up, and I, and I began to study this over time, and I found out that about 50% of the time, the children that pulled out of the youth group at some point... Uh, along the way in, in ditched youth group, is that about 50% of those, those children, after they left the church, became apostates. They, they, they abandoned the church altogether. Not just like a PCA church um, with, with you know, reasonably decent teaching. They, they abandoned evangelical churches altogether. 50%. And I thought, that is crazy. Um, and I talked to a, a number of my colleagues in student ministry. Uh, a number of other pastors, and I, I shared with them, I said, this is, this is what I came up with when I looked at, you know, this was the actual data. I ran through in our church and looked at our history of our kids and went back about 10 years to see what was, was happening. They said, same thing, same exact thing. One of the, the most harmful things that you will do to your child, even if it's for conservative reasons, is that abandoning the church is the, the, the what it produces that is our children who abandon the church. Shocker. But, but that's exactly what happens. Um, when children don't take risks, when they don't climb on things and get too high in trees uh, and jump out, uh, they don't learn balance, they don't learn what they can do, and they become fearful of things that they shouldn't be fearful of. Uh, kids that don't ride their bikes have more trouble when it comes time to drive a car. Um, you'd rather them have accidents on bikes than you would rather have, rather than have accidents in cars. Um, one is much more costly and dangerous um, than the other. Um, and then learning to dis- deal with disappointment. You know adults that can't deal with disappointment? You know adults that, that get crushed you know, by you know, small things that are said or things that happen to them in, in various in, in, you know, situations and it destroys them and undoes them and they think, now I have to leave the church because this happened. But we begin overcoming this right now um, with our children. So what are the consequences of not doing that? Here, here are some things, just kind of a, a quick list. Uh, by not exposing our kids to hard things, not letting them do things that are difficult, not letting them experience pain, what you produce is incompetence. You create risk aversion. You create learned helplessness. You produce a victim mindset. You foster a tendency to retreat or towards self-preservation. You create a lack of resilience. And it tends to produce a failure to launch, which is when children come to an age of uh, young adulthood and they don't leave the home, and they don't want to leave the home. Why? Because it's safe. Because they have everything they need. Because it's comfortable. Because they're afraid of what's out there. And so, can you be any of those things... Incompetent, risk-averse, helpless, a victim, tend towards self-preservation, lack of resilience, not launch. Can you be any of those things and be a disciple of Christ? No. You can't. It just doesn't fit who, with who we're called to be in Christ. And so there should be this sense of, of like, i got to deal with this. I, my, my child, my highest ambition for them is to be a disciple of Christ, to follow Him where He leads, wherever that goes. So that so I have to be thinking now. How do I begin to produce that? How do you produce it? Well, let me let me point you towards a, a few things. Um, 
first off, I'm going to repeat what I repeat all the time, because, I, because in discovering this, I think it's so important, is a biblical doctrine of vocation. It's to understand not the calling you have from God for, towards one particular kind of work, but the callings that God gives to every Christian. And the first calling as a Christian is the call to answer the gospel, to repent and believe. If you don't get that one right, nothing else matters uh, after that. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. There is a calling to Christ, to repent, to believe, and then to walk worthy of that calling. A second one is the calling of, of being a family member. This is the first government of any person, is that you are born into a family, there's an authority structure that, structure that you're under, and you answer to people in that family for their good. Is that your, your children need to know they have a vocation in the family, that their vocation, their calling is to be a child of you as the parent. And that has many rights, privileges, and responsibilities that go along with that. Work towards becoming contributing members of the family. Colossians 3.18 Wives, submit to your own husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The first vocation you enter into is to be a child in a family. A third vocation, a third calling from God is as a church member. Ephesians 4.4, 4, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were not, who once not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have mercy. Uh, especially with young community members, part of answering that call into the church and fulfilling that vocation is what it says there, you're a chosen generation, a whole a holy people, or a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you. Is that that calling calls you into worship, to be a worshiper. And so your children should be working on learning how to worship, and that's part of your vocation as parents is equipping them uh, to do that. If they're going to take membership vows, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Those are adult responsibilities you want your children entering into with knowledge, with understanding, with a commitment to fulfill. Um, Lord's Day commitment fosters that. Morning and evening. Being a part of the life of the church uh, in, in the regular ministries that go on. You know, Being here for Wednesday. Can you come eat the meal, man? Everybody's got to eat. Stick around for another hour. Good things happen uh, afterwards. And then, and then your children learn a commitment to the church by watching your investments into the life of the church. Do you host families at your church? Do you visit widows? Do you bring things to people who are in need? Or, or, or do you come to, to funerals and weddings and things like that when there's an opportunity to participate in those things so that they feel that connection and say, this is, this is my identity this, these are things that you do when you're in the body of Christ. And then uh, the calling to be a citizen or a community member. Christ would say to love your neighbors. Um, Peter says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, which they can see, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's honorable conduct that we have to have with neighbors and are, are you good to your next door neighbors? Do you give your kids an opportunity to be, to be good towards them? You know, they respect their yard. They invite other kids over to play. Is that 
You're part of, the, part of the process. And then finally, there's a calling to be a Christian worker, to, to work as unto the Lord um, and not to men. Uh, your parents or, or your children will learn that as they see you working and they understand the vocation you have. Um, whether you're working inside the home or outside the home, your children will observe your work, and that, that matters. Um, it also matters... Um, the, the, how they exercise those vocations now. So one of those vocations, their, their work typically is being a student. Um, it's a calling from God. It's a burden that's placed upon them where God expects them to perform in that. Uh, maybe they answer the call at Chick-fil-A. And they, and they go to work and you know, it's the only safe place for your kid to work um, is get them employed by Chick-fil-A. Um, for PCA kids anyway. Um, but, but where they're part of a team, where they're under authority, Sports teams, clubs, um, even drama, things like that where you belong, your presence is required, what you contribute to the team matters, uh, and there's a voice of authority over you. You want that for, for your child. And recognizing that as parents, you don't want to be the only voice of authority. You want other voices of authority, uh, other times where they have to be answering to someone else. Well, if you want more on vocation, uh, William Perkins' uh, treatise um, uh, on Christian vocation, I think that's what it's called, uh, has some, some good guidelines in there. You can take a look at that. Okay. Um, finally, very practical stuff. Seven opportunities for creating agency in your children. Um, and we're going to go from, from young age, kind of on up. Grab what you will. Number one, free play. By free play, I mean somewhat bounded. You know, there's an arena. There, there are walls of the octagon. Um, but places where they can play with neighbors... To a degree you feel reasonable about, not going to be perfectly safe, don't expect to be perfectly safe. They may learn words that you didn't want them to learn, um, and those are opportunities to deal. Um, boys need to wrestle with each other. They, there's a lot that goes on in figuring out kind of honorable conduct, what limits are. Um, when, and moms, I know it's not in your nature to say, that's awesome. Uh, dads, you're a little bit better at that. Um, and, you know, it's nice if you can observe it, but frequently they figure it out. Um, and if you weren't there, they would go for a little bit, and then they would they would be done. Um, and then somebody might have a shiner, might be a bloody nose. Um, but my, I, I grew up with a brother who's about a year and a half, um, or about, about two years older than me. We were always the same size, and it was it was brutal in the summers. Um, both parents worked. Um, it, it was kind of you wake up octagon time. Um, you're you're in there. And, um, and, and, we, and we figured out what the limits were. And I, there was one day that... Taking my glasses off for this one. Um, there, there was one day where um, we, we came to blows over something. And, and I hit my brother and it threw a punch to the face, which was against the rules. Um, and there's just kind of code of conduct. You know, you hit in the chest and you wrestled and things like that. But you don't just... And I hit him in the nose, and all of a sudden blood comes pouring out of his nose. And he does this number, and he looks at me, and I'm like, uh-oh. And then, and then he throws a punch, uh, and, and it hits me in the jaw, and I'm like, whoop, wait. And I spit out a tooth. And then he looked at me, and he's like, uh-oh. Um, and I, I got kind of crazy back then, and, and, and he's like, I'm going to lock myself in the bathroom. And uh, there was a hole in the bathroom door. Um, covered it up for a few years um, before my dad saw it. Wasn't good when he did. I uh, hadn't outgrown the discipline yet at that point, but we didn't kill each other. Uh, it, it was rough at times. Nobody got maimed. Everybody's eyes were in, were intact. Um, and just know that there's something good about that. 
the Air Force Academy, as a, as a freshman, the Air Force Academy, guess what is a required class for males? Hazing. Yeah, boxing. Yeah. Is a required class is boxing. Guess what happens to your face in boxing? You get punched. Yeah. You get, you get, you get hit hard in the face. And the only thing they didn't want you to do is to get knocked out. Because if you get knocked out, you, you lose your poly qualifications. Um, but if, if you got concussed a little bit, which happens in boxing, um, especially as you're learning, they were okay with that. They wanted you to know what it, feel like, what it felt like to get punched in the face. They wanted you to know how to give a punch and to know what you're capable of. Um, it, it is a good thing to learn your competence. And then once you've, done, once you've been hit in the face, um, you generally understand, okay, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. You can keep going uh, if you've been hit in the face. And that is a competence. Even if you didn't learn uh, jujitsu and master something, you did learn, I can do this hard thing, I can feel this pain, and I can keep fighting um, despite that, that thing. It's like I don't have to fall down, it's over. I can, I can keep going. So free play is good with some limits. Um, second thing is working alongside. Uh, you probably don't know this about me. I grew up. I was one of the richest kids in my city. Um, why are you laughing? <laughs> I, I mean, granted, it's it's a town of a thousand um, in central Texas where everybody's poor, um, and and we were we were very very poor. Um, my dad worked at a factory during the day. Um, he was a farmer and rancher by night, and basically what that meant is that when he got off his shift, which he would get off about 2.30, he would come home the same time I got out of school, and he would say, come on boys, let's go to the place. And that meant we were going to the farm. And we were going to spend, uh, homework or not, you would pack it along and take it with you, but we were going to drive out to the farm, which is like 20 miles away. Um, we had several pieces of land that, we, that my dad would go and work, and, and you were doing things that you didn't want to do. It was painful. It was torture. Uh, there was only AM radio stations back then. It was nothing but like Merle Haggard. Um, Carl would have loved it. Um, I didn't think it was great. Uh, and and that's, that's what we had to deal with. We opened gates. We mended fences. We, we looked at fields. We counted cattle. We, sometimes we would work things. Uh, my dad was always working on equipment. He, was, he, could, he could just fix anything. And the reason he did is because we were poor and he had to. And there were things that I saw by virtue of being there that weren't competences I had or competencies that I had but just by seeing my dad I thought I'm capable of that I've, I've seen this done I know it can be done by an average human being you know you get the right tools right situation you can do it and so there's a competence that I had just based on watching and seeing things that that I you know had limited participation in I mean we, we drove tractors we did you know we did all sorts of other things we, we cut things off of um, cattle and sheep that um, uh, weren't considered advantageous and and those were um, skills I haven't used for a while I'm happy to say. Uh, but your children will learn by observing you, by working alongside. They're, they, they're not a lot of help. I don't think I was a, that much help to my dad. You know, they, you know, go get this tool or whatever while he was under something. Um, but I, I learn things, and your children will learn by, by being a part of that. It's okay if they're horribly bored, if they're suffering the whole time, and they're not entertained. That's okay. They're learning something. And guess what now? What do I remember about those things, about going to the farm with my dad? Oh, that was the best time ever, man! I wish I wish I had asked my dad this question. I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done this. And there's there's this just this you know warm glow about these things that I I, I know I suffered through, but it, but it's so good. And, and there's so much that I took away from that. 
Third thing they need are chores. Parents forget to make and to let their children work. Um, in rapid fire, just in the home, you don't have to have a farm to go work. In the home, ages two to three, helping make the bed, pick up toys, put laundry in the hamper, help feeding pets, helping to wipe up messes, dusting with socks on their hands, um, uh, putting small items into a dishwasher, plastic, not the glass stuff, they, it's not good. Um, Dry mopping in small areas. The things that two or three year, two and three year olds can be involved in. Is it going to be helpful? No. But they're, they're doing something. Ages four to five. Helping clear the table. Making a bed independently. Dusting. Carrying in and putting away groceries. Helping to cook and prepare. Sorting uh, whites and colors for the laundry. Watering plants. Pulling garden weeds. Washing small dishes in the sink. Helping clean their own room. Six to eight. Taking care of pets. Vacuuming. Sweeping. Mopping. Taking out the trash. Folding laundry. Making their own snacks, emptying, loading the dishwasher, walking the dog with a pooper scooper with some supervision. They're not the best at that. <laughs> Raking leaves. Um, little anecdote. When Clay was five years old, he was walking around grumpy and just mad all the time. And um, uh, Carrie finally asked, she said, okay, what, what, why are you so uh, upset? What, do you, what is going on? He said, I just want to be able to pour my own milk. Just, just becoming a man, you know, and involved pouring his own milk. He, he had outgrown his mom doing that. Um, there's a competence that was, that was there that should have been doing. Um, and it goes on, you know, taking out the garbage, running the washer and dryer, doing, doing all sorts of things. Just, there are things they not only can they be doing, but they should be doing so that they understand that family vocation and they become competent later on. It, it's a wonderful thing to see when they get that. Fourth major category, training and role play. You can't teach them, you can't, you can't do everything for them, but do puppy training. Um, what's puppy training? You know, when you got a toddler, um, it's no different than with a puppy. Put them at the end of the, paw, end of the hall with mom holding them, and then you go to the other end of the hall and you go, come. And they stumble down to you and give them an M&M. Or if it's a dog, you, you give them a kibble. And they just got to just make sure you have, you have the right one in the pocket when you're training um, the right one. But, but do things like that. And then do that for everything as they, as they go. So you finally decide, okay, I think we can do this sleepover with this family. Um, train them and equip them. Say, okay, let's say uh, they wake up in the middle of the night and say, hey, let's go downstairs and watch a movie um, uh, when, when my parents are asleep. Tell them, okay, what are you going to do in that scenario? Let me tell you what you can do. Or what happens if they, they want to call this boy um, on the phone when, you, when, when you're over there and, and you, you're, you're, you know that's, a, that's a, somebody that they shouldn't be talking to and this is a bad idea. Here's, here's how you tell them, hey, you know what, I'm not, I'm not feeling good because you can not feel good about a lot of stuff and say, I, um, I think, I, think I, I need to go home. I'm going to call my mom. Uh, and and you give them some tools that they can navigate a situation. I don't know, you know, what it is for what situation, but anticipate as parents what what could you do for them. Um, training for relating to people. We used to do church training on the way to church. We'd say, okay, we're going to see so and so today, and when you see them, I want you to say hello. I want you to say hello, Mr. Bradenbaugh, and I want you to ask Mr. Bradenbaugh how are you doing, and. Sometimes this didn't go well. A lot of times it didn't go well. And we'd tell Mr. Bradenbaugh, hey, we're going to do this again. Call him up. We're going to come to you. Be looking for us. Please be patient because this may take seven or eight minutes of your morning. Um, and 
and bring somebody into your team as a part of that. So train them, prepare them, and give them the opportunity to practice that. Train them with conflict resolution. Train them how to read their Bible. Check in periodically with your kids. If you think they're reading your Bible, ask them today. Tell me, what, you, what, what do you think that means when, when you go to read your Bible? What are, what are you doing there? Find out. If not, give them training on that. This is how I begin every middle school camp. First, first session I have with the kids, I tell them, this is how you have a devotional time. This is what it looks like. Here's how you read your Bible. Fifth thing, diverse authorities and, and opportunities to be under authority. I've mentioned that already. You want people telling them um, how to do things that they have to answer to. Uh, you want competition for them where they can run into people and find out their limitations, be asked to do more than they thought they could do, and learn to glorify God in that. And then the last thing, and this is the the one I want to finish on, is camps and conferences. Um, Send your kid away with trusted agents, uh, adults from your church who love your kids or deeply invested in them, uh, and send them away to experience the disorienting effect of being away from home. And going and doing something that's going to give them an upset stomach is going to give them the opportunity to self-police and decide how much candy they're going to eat on their own. Uh, it's going to give them the ability to, to swing on a rope over a lake and run through the woods at night with sticks in their hand um, where lots of bad things can happen. Send them to those. Um, it, there's a wonderful thing that happens in those situations that grows competencies. I, I've said this before, RYM... Uh, the Senior High Summer Conference has many flaws from year to year. There's always things that I come away disappointed with. But one of the wonderful things is that the kids, uh, they have seminars in the afternoon where the kids get to pick a class to go to. And you don't realize this, but this will probably be the first spiritual decision they will ever make on their own. Where they will say, I could go to this class or this class. I think this one would do my soul better. Um, yeah, a lot of times they go, everybody going to this class? Okay, I'm going to that one. <laughs> but it's still a choice. And they go and, and they, they think they've made this intentional choice and they go together. It's a wonderful thing for that, for that to happen. Okay, okay, I mean, um, so give them opportunities. Know your child has capabilities that, that you may not recognize, but they're there and you want to draw them out, make them competent so they can be the disciples of Christ that they need to be. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we entrust our children to you and we ask that we would, by believing in your covenant promises, we would manifest our hope and confidence in you. Lord, take them and do good things with them for your glory and kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you.